play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Stephen Page. Stephen was the lead singer, guitarist, and songwriter of the Bare Naked Ladies until the band split about a decade ago, and he's been a solo artist ever since. His new album is called Discipline, Heal Thyself, Part Two. And yes, there is a part one, if you are wondering. I'm standing on my Sometimes it gets lonely, but I know I'm not alone. And if you want to feel old, like really old, when do you think the song Million Dollars by the Bare Naked Ladies came out? So I wanted to play you a little sample of the song right here, but it turns out the record label wanted money for me to play that song, so we're not going to be able to play it for you. But in case you're not familiar... You're going to hear a little rendition right here. Ready? If I, can you help me? If, if I, I had, had a million dollars. If I, wait, didn't someone do backup kind of? I should have done the backup. Should, okay, let's try it again. If, if I, I had, had a million dollars. If I had a million dollars. Yeah. Nailed it. I did not know that that was from 1988. Yeah, we wrote 30 it. 30 years ago. The first song that we ever wrote together, me and Ed Robertson. Yeah. When we were it, 18, yeah. Stephen is also a major food lover and quite knowledgeable on the topic of food. He hosted The Illegal Eater, a TV show where he traveled around eating at underground restaurants. So we have something in common we both don't like to call ourselves foodies. I think foodie became a thing that was like, it was not about the experience of eating it or understanding where it comes from or the creativity behind it or the, you know, the cultural traditions or anything else. It was just about having it. I've got to collect the best of this or the most talked about of the other thing. In general, too, I've gotten so sick of fancy food. And there's a fetishization of that, too. Stephen says he's grown to appreciate and really love the food that he grew up eating. So Gefilteria co-founder Jeffrey Yoskowitz joins the show to talk about his mission to keep Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine relevant. We got started at a time when it felt like we were just the only people of our generation that cared about these foods, but quickly... We started noticing a lot of other people were opening restaurants or starting businesses. We call it the Jewish food renaissance. And we're seeing this kind of um, attraction to a young generation. And because Stephen Page is a man who loves soup, I interviewed a man who is famous because of soup. (laughs) Soup fame. It's a thing. His name is Larry Thomas. He is the actor who played... The soup Nazi on Seinfeld. Well, I've always made soup. You know, I'm, I'm Jewish, so you start making chicken noodle soup from a very early age. All of that is coming up. Plus, I will share why my mom's matzo ball soup is the best matzo ball soup, which I think is something that every Jewish daughter has said in the history of being Jewish. But first, my conversation with Stephen Page. Stephen met Ed Robertson, who is the person who would eventually become his Bare Naked Ladies bandmate when he was in fifth grade and Ed was in fourth. Although they are from Canada. So when he told the story, he said grade five and grade four. And Stephen hated Ed. 
I hated him because we went to this gifted program. Um, Don't want to brag, but. I know. Isn't that weird? Like, <laughs> even this, like, how many years later is this? This is this is 40 years later. I'm still feeling self-conscious about saying it. We were at the school. He was a grade below me. My previous best friend from my old school also came into that cohort. And this guy, Ed Robertson, had kind of stolen him from me. Like, Ugh. Dean Polly, my best friend for all of my young childhood, was ignoring me and hanging out with Ed Robertson. So, of course, I hated Ed Robertson. He yeah. was like this, he was kind of this scruffy kid with, you know, freckles and unruly curly hair and heavy metal t-shirts and stuff. I <laughs> thought he was a tough guy. Yeah. Because I was the softest child in the world. Like, yeah. everybody was a tough guy as far as I was concerned. Yeah. Were you wearing bow ties then? No, I was, but I was probably wearing turtlenecks. Oh, cute. Lo- yeah, I was, uh, you know, maybe a striped turtleneck or something Ooh, like that. Oh, like kind of like orange tones. Yeah. The colors of the refrigerators and the shag carpet. Yeah. I was very clean. I cried a lot. <laughs> you were just sensitive. <laughs> I was that boy. You were a poet. <laughs> <laughs> so I just didn't have any relationship with him until years later when we were in high school and I watched his band play and they were actually good. They played Talking Heads and Peter Gabriel and a bunch of different stuff. And I thought, this is cool. Then that summer, I was working at a summer music camp as a counselor, and Ed was there as well. And he was walking around with his acoustic guitar everywhere he went, singing different songs. And people loved him, and I was jealous of him. And then um, he walked up to me and sang a song that I had written with another friend of mine. We wow. made tapes in our basement. He sang it right at me, which, was, of course, I was totally flattered. But we started singing together, and uh, the harmonies were Perfect. Like right away. I think, you know, you're 18. You don't want to say, I just fell in love with this guy. But you look back and you go, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the same feeling. Yes. It was a musical feeling, but we didn't want to be apart from each other. Hmm. But meanwhile, we're, we're writing all these songs, whether it's If I Had a Million Dollars or Brian Wilson or What a Good Boy or any of those songs that have had a lot of longevity to them. Yes. If I may do the annoying thing and read some of your own lyrics back to you and then ask a question about them. Uh, So in If I Had a Million Dollars, there's a line or a few lines that says, we wouldn't have to eat craft dinner, but we would eat craft dinner. Of course we would. We just eat more and buy really expensive ketchup with it. That's right. All the fanciest Dijon ketchups. First of all, I'm sure you know by now that in the U.S. we call it just craft mac and cheese. I I think a lot of people don't know that it's called craft dinner in Canada. But is that true for you when you became successful? Did you still eat craft dinner? Probably not for very long afterwards, Uh but uh, you know, at that time that when Ed and I were hanging out, we would just make giant pots of craft dinner. It's so good. It is. It's weird and good. I love it. And my kids, when you know, when I had little kids, they didn't like the orange stuff, so I had to get them the you know the Annie's organic. Uh It's fine, but it's not the same. No, they don't have any of that kind of nostalgia for it. It's what you eat when Dad's cooking or whatever else. You know, or the babysitter's coming. That's exactly right. And the box says it has four servings and it really serves one. I know. What are they talking about? I've never eaten it and not eaten the whole thing. Right. And I always start civilized and I put half of it in a bowl. Yep. And then I eat that. And then I just go and I get the whole pot and I eat the rest of it just out of the pot like a maniac. It was also, I think, when we realized that the craft dinner um, didn't translate to anywhere else, whether it was here or to the UK, we kind of liked that even more. And that really got me into the idea of... If I was to be able to trace it back, the idea of local foods and the things that people don't realize are local right. really fascinates me. And right. I, so I, where I live in, in upstate New York right now, and in central New York, they call it, which is outside of Syracuse. So between Rochester and Albany, essentially, they have all kinds of things that they don't understand 
are local to them. They're just what they eat. Like what? Well, one of the things is it's it's not that different, but they call them salt potatoes. They're grown locally, and they come with a giant bag of rock salt. We pour the salt into the pot. They're white potatoes, new white potatoes, and they get really crusty on the outside because of all the salt. So they're super crunchy on the outside and super soft on the inside. And then they pour a ton of butter on them and mix them up with the butter. the best. It's amazing. It's super plain. Yeah. And my wife, when I met her, she had no idea that it was not something every American Uh. had an option to eat or whatever. Okay, so you're Canadian, uh-huh. uh, but you live in New York now. There are foods that I think a lot of uh, United States Americans know about Canada. Poutine has mm-hmm. traveled south to us. We know about your maple syrup, uh, the Montreal bagel. Is there a food that is lesser known that's really delicious and Canadian that we might not know about? Well, an interesting thing is all three of those things that you mentioned are all from Quebec. Oh. And so Canada has always seen itself as having no food culture except for Quebec. And poutine was one of those things when we first started Bare Naked Ladies 30 years ago, Ed and I would go to Montreal and we get excited about going to get poutine because you couldn't get it anywhere else in Canada. So we'd go and get poutine, which is French fries and cheese curds and then the worst packaged chicken gravy you can get. Anything else, any fancy poutine is just a bastardization. I like bastardization. Oh, but I like the I like <laughs> I like the other stuff because because for us the snack as a kid was you go to the local community hockey rink and you get fries and gravy uh-huh. chips, chips and gravy as we call it. I yeah. think chips transformed into fries in Canada sometime in the eighties. I think in my memory. Um, Sorry, we probably did it to you. I don't know. McDonald's did it. I think. Yeah, yeah, McDonald's did it. Yep. Uh, I know that you guys here have a bit of the, the, there's a bit of bleed over from British Columbia with the with the Nanaimo bar. Do you ever have you had the Nanaimo bar? I just heard about this for the first time on another podcast recently. It's some kind of dessert bar, right? Yeah, it's a dessert bar like a like a brownie or a blondie, but it, it's, a, it's a, a lot of coconut in the bottom layer, coconut and chocolate, dense, almost like a brownie. And then there's like a custard and a chocolate on top. Yum. Yeah, they're really good. They're really good. Nanaimo bars may be good, but they are not Stephen's last meal. We will get to that after this quick break. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite. 
just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Stephen Page used to be all about fancy restaurants. Michelin stars, expensive wine, the whole thing. But after years and years of fine dining, his tastes have changed. So let's see what Stephen Page wants for his last meal. If you had asked me this question 15 years ago, I would have probably been like, I'm going to go to El Bulli. Because it was a dream of mine. I yeah. never got there. But I got gotten to some of the, those great restaurants in the world and had some really great meals. You know, when I used to be a wine collector and I was really into that and I got busted for drug possession and I thought maybe I should stop collecting wine too. <laughs> um, maybe maybe I'll just kind of keep those kind of things right. a little a little less uh, integral to my life. Uh, what I loved about it was the stats and everything else, like being able to do all the research and find out what years right. and, and, you know, we talked really about terroir out. and really nerd out about it and all the details and get to meet people who are doing it. And they kind of became my rock stars in a way. But I don't miss it at all. Like the older I get and maybe the happier I get, if you're allowed to be happier. You are. That's <laughs> the know. beauty of adulthood. I'm you trying can to give myself some yeah. permission. I'm nostalgic about the food I grew up with. Neither my grandmother nor my mother, I hope my mom doesn't hear this, um, neither of them were great cooks. My mother loves to cook for the same reasons I do. She cooks for people. She cooks for family. She, so, you know, growing up Jewish, she huge spreads for high holidays uh, or for Passover, that kind of thing. Yes. So, you know, a brisket, my other favorite food is soup. Any soup? Just in general. I, I'm an old what are man. You, Hugh Hefner? Oh, I'm told. Is that, was that his food? <laughs> that was. I read an article once that he would have a huge party, but he'd be upstairs in his silk pajamas. He would be eating soup, and then he'd come down and just say hello, hello, and then he'd go back up and probably have like another bowl of soup. Wow. Well, yeah. What, did the soup change daily? I don't know. I we, went, we will never know now. I went to that Playboy Mansion and uh, you once, did once, and it was very dated, and it was Duran Duran were playing a corporate event there. And what? nobody cared. Like the audience was talking all the way through it. And I was like, this is Duran Duran. Yeah. Come on. Listen so up. I went and hung out in the dressing room with them, which was the games room. And it was all like all these 70s pinball games. Oh, that's awesome. It was great. But it looked like it hadn't been touched since since they they filmed Peter Sellers' The Party there or something. That's what it looked like. <laughs> kind of like Graceland. Just yeah, like stuck exactly in like time. That. And so I assume the soup must have been some kind of either had uh, Campbell's cheese soup in it, a uh, consomme with sherry. Did you get to eat anything when you were at the Playboy Mansion? No. It was, I'm glad I got to see it, but it wasn't my, it wasn't my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, final meal. I would go with the full, the full Jewish holiday thing. So I get my soup, my matzo ball soup and uh, brisket and kasha varnishkas. Do you know what that is? I do. I'm also Jewish. All right. So kasha varnishkas. I will even go with several slices of gefilte fish. This is a From thing. From the jar? Yeah. In the jar. With the jelly. I, I love that. <laughs> Me too. This is a thing that I, I don't know how you could come to it as an adult. Well, I have a Seder every year and I invite different people every year and most of the time they aren't Jewish. And I would say three quarters of the people have never had it and like it. It's I good. always have a jar of it in my fridge. because oh, you do? It's like that's the thing that if I'm feeling like super wistful, sad, like uh -huh. whatever, or I've just gotten home and, and everybody's asleep and I just got home after being away for two weeks. I'll open a jar of gefilte fish. You know, my kids all love it too, which is a, a nice thing. Like yeah. they, they all like will have multiple pieces and could probably eat the whole jar if you let them um, at any family dinner. So that makes me proud. 
And then you yeah, you put usually the the, the red beet colored horseradish like on it. Too. My mom always puts a little slice of carrot. If somebody, I always look at that and think, why didn't you put the strawberries in my cereal like the box then, too? Yes. I was obsessed with wanting, as a part of this, complete breakfast. Yeah, me too. I was like, can I have a tiny little orange juice, a tiny milk? Yeah, my parents would say, it says serving suggestion. When I would like, I'd say, but I'd like the sliced strawberries or sliced peaches or whatever is totally. on the Totally. And the milk made out of glue. <laughs> <laughs> is that the conclusion? Is the gefilte fish the end or is there any more? Uh, what else is after that? I, I think at that point... I have to, you know what? I would have to start if we're going to start the meal uh, with some hors d'oeuvres. Like I would, I would go for some some chopped liver first. Mm-hmm. That's a big one for me too. Speaking of Jewish food, then, and being from Canada and living in New York now, do you have a preference between the New York bagel and the Montreal bagel? They're really different beasts. Like yeah. the Montreal bagel, the way to eat it is to go to the the bakery, and they're open twenty four hours. The three main ones in Montreal. You know, especially if it's cold outside and you go in and it's two in the morning and you buy a dozen or a half dozen steaming hot in the bag with a thing of cream cheese and you stand out front and you Ooh. you just tear off a piece of bagel and dunk it in the cream cheese and eat it right there. That's the best way to eat it. They don't last long. Like They get stale very quickly. Don't toast a bagel till the second day. Like it just does. There's right. no reason for it. It has. A, it's a beautiful thing. Second day, you can toast that thing. You know, as the life of the bagel, the bag starts to dwindle and the life starts to go out of them. Then you can start thinking about other things to do with them, other things to put on them. Like that's when a breakfast sandwich can happen, <laughs> whatever else. But otherwise, you know, bagels are they're special to me. So a tuna bagel is usually day two for me. I keep joking with my wife, and I'm going. To, it's not really a joke because it's not funny, but. Um, <laughs> But I, I think, I think the fact that it's not funny is funny. Yeah. They say I'm going to make a restaurant called Tuna Perfection, because I've just been so out of my own pride for the sandwich I've just made, where I will make tuna salad bag tuna bagels for anybody who'd like them, and then twice a week we'll have uh, tuna melts. That's it. Perfection. Yeah. Why, why mess with perfection? I've eaten all around the world. I can cook just about anything, and things that will make me the happiest are tuna bagel, cheese omelet. Uh, and a bowl of soup of any sort. Those are the things that will make me the happiest. But for his last meal, Stephen Page wants a classic Ashkenazi Jewish holiday meal. Chopped liver, gefilte fish, matzo ball soup, kasha varnishkas, and brisket. And if you're like, what's a kasha varnishka? Don't worry. We will fill you in in just a few minutes. So minus the kasha varnishkas, Stephen's last meal is a very traditional meal eaten by Ashkenazi Jews on Passover. So a quick little lesson, Ashkenazi Jews are from Eastern Europe. Then there are Sephardic Jews who are from places like Spain and Morocco, and they eat completely different food. And I know there are a lot of Sephardic Jewish people out there who get frustrated uh, when dishes like matzo ball soup and gefilte fish are categorized simply as Jewish food because they're like, hey, our food is Jewish food too, and you only focus on this one particular kind. There's a word that I've heard people use. It's Ashkenormative which I really like. Maybe that was founded by one of my favorite podcasts, Unorthodox. Anyway, like I was saying, Ashkenazi Jews eat all of these foods every year on Passover. It's just like how Americans eat the same lineup of dishes on Thanksgiving. But there was a time when these foods were eaten year-round by Jewish people, not just on a holiday. And Jeffrey Yoskowitz is on a mission to bring these culturally rich dishes back to the dinner table, no matter the season. Jeffrey is the co-founder of Gefilteria. He's the co-author of the Gefilte Manifesto cookbook, and he makes his own gefilte fish that you can order because he ships it across the country. Little gefilte fish is flying through the mail. That's weird. And if you're not familiar with gefilte fish, 
Oh, God, I don't even know where to start. They are these little patties, or I would call them pucks, of ground fish that are poached or baked, and then they're eaten cold. And a lot of people, like my family, we only bought gefilte fish in a jar, the iconic Manischewitz brand. And I would say that they have the texture of like a really dense, cold meatball. Really selling the gefilte fish here, aren't I? Gefilte fish is quite divisive. It's kind of a love it or hate it food. And the fact that they often come in a jar suspended in gelatin does not help with its appeal. But back to Jeffrey, he started all of his ventures with his friend Liz Alpern. We felt like something was just off with Jewish food, specifically Eastern European Jewish food. At that time, uh, delis were closing around the country. I was constantly reading articles about the last pastrami sandwich. Uh, It felt like this piece of my culture that was so important to me was disappearing. And so Liz and I found each other. We both were working in the food world. We were both from the New York area. We both loved matzo ball soup and the knishes. And we whispered to each other, like, I love this food. Why is everyone saying it's over? And uh, we decided we were going to do something about it. And the first thing we did was tackle perhaps the laughing stock of all Jewish food, which was gefilte fish. And we said, if we could make gefilte fish relevant, if we could make it good, if we could make people want to eat it, we could do anything. You know, you've kind of built your empire on this food that a lot of people think is gross. I happen to be a big fan of gefilte fish, but I grew up eating the gefilte fish in a jar. And because of that, I prefer (laughs) it because I grew up with it. And my gross memory is of my dad drinking the gelatin out of the jar and just gagging and thinking that was gross. Let me have you start from the beginning. A lot of people listening did not grow up eating these foods. Can you just talk about what is gefilte fish? Oh, my gosh. Rachel, what a story. I know. Um, Gefilte fish, because of that jar, has a really bad reputation. But when it's made uh, with good ingredients, I make it with sustainably sourced fish and I make it with really fresh fish and it can be really good. You know, one of the classic kinds of fish is carp. I actually don't use carp because it's sort of a bottom feeding fish and uh, full of heavy metals from the Great Lakes. I use whitefish and pike as sort of the main part of the gefilte fish. Mine that I make commercially actually has a steelhead trout and salmon. What you really what you do is you grind the fish. Onions are a big part of the flavor profile. So you grind those in as well. You mix in uh, mainly white pepper and salt. And depending on where you're from, sugar. So my family's Polish. Polish gefilte fish is associated with sweetness, mainly because a lot of Polish communities were near the sugar beet plantations in Eastern Europe. If you're from Lithuania or parts of Russia, Belarus, you would never even think of sugar in your gefilte fish. That would be the most disgusting thing you could ever imagine. Then you would mix that all together and then you either make your um, balls, depending on how you want to shape them, and you poach them, or you can put them into a loaf pan and you can bake your gefilte fish, which is my preferred way to do it, and then you'll serve it. Gefilte fish is traditionally served with grated horseradish as a condiment. And I'm sure some fancier people grate it fresh, but I've always used the jarred kind of creamy stuff, either the white kind or the less nose-burning magenta kind that has pureed beets in it. That's the good kind. It's kind of like uh, sushi and wasabi. Uh, Wasabi has antimicrobial properties and you eat it with the raw fish. It's sort of your insurance policy. And uh, the horseradish plays the same role with the gefilte fish. And I just want to talk about the fact that every time I go to the grocery store, okay, nine out of 10 times I go to the grocery store, I go to the little Jewish section. It's like I have to check in. I want to make sure that the stuff is still there. It's like my weird little, like, my people have been oppressed for so long. Maybe one day 
they'll take the matzo away from us. So I go and I stroll. And admittedly, I am always looking to see if something's on sale because the jarred gefilte fish is expensive. So random times of the year, they'll put it on sale and uh, I'll just throw one into the cart. But otherwise, you know, I'm like, okay, matzah, Shabbat candles. Yeah, we're good here. And then I'll go and buy some bananas. Another dish on Stephen's last meal list is kasha varnishkas. I've never had this dish. My mom never made it for me. Can you describe what it is? Uh, yes, I just made it a couple days ago. It's one of my favorites as well. Um, so kasha, which is a roasted buckwheat. So it's kind of like, a, like rice, for those who don't know, but brown and earthier and nuttier, mixed with bow tie noodles. <laughs> it's sort of the, one of the ridiculous things of Jewish cooking. It's like a starch with a starch, you know, um, it, it's totally unnecessary. And yet there's something that is so gratifying about eating kasha varnishkas. And when it's done well, it is um, somewhat greasy because it's made with schmaltz, which is uh, rendered chicken fat. It's salty and the kasha is often cooked with a chicken broth. So it's really just fluffy and uh, it's just everything that you want. Yeah, it sounds like the ultimate comfort food with double carbs. This dish also includes a lot of caramelized onions. But this is an old Eastern European dish. So what is up with the bow tie noodles? How the bow tie noodles came about, uh, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, you know, I think this, I've heard a lot of suggestions. Maybe it's because the Jews were right next to the Italians on the Lower East Side. And so, you know, you had access to uh, from the pasta shops and things like that. But I, I, I don't know, but I, I just love it. I can't imagine it with any other noodle. Okay, so I'm only going to highlight a few of the dishes on Stephen's last meal list because we'd be here all day getting into the history of brisket. And then I'd have to have my mom on to talk about her chopped liver. But we do have to talk about matzo ball soup because to me, this is the touchstone of Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine. Matzo ball soup is a chicken soup base and the matzo balls are like big, round, tender, carby dumplings made from matzo meal, egg, schmaltz, which is chicken fat, or oil and some spices. And they soak up the chicken broth when they're in the soup. They're very comfort foody. And if you've never had a matzo ball or matzo ball soup, you need to crash a Passover Seder. It is coming up in April. Find a Jew and knock on the door of their home. It's actually part of the holiday that they have to let you in. So there are, of course, many ways to make matzo ball soup. It's a family tradition kind of dish. But in my family, we do our soup with sliced carrots, celery and onion, a big bunch of fresh dill, and my mom's secret ingredient, secrets out, parsnips. I always put them in my soup as well. And this is a very personal food. It's a nostalgic-driven food, and no Jewish deli is going to beat the pot of soup that my mom or I make. For me, Jewish food is a weird thing because yeah, you can eat it out. People do. Like You can go to a restaurant, and they're almost always slightly worse than getting it at home. Oh, yes. Which is the opposite of most foods. To have it really good is a rare thing. So I wanted to know if there were other foods that people felt they could make better at home than could be made at a restaurant. Because restaurant food has a lot of butter and a lot of salt, and it makes things taste really good. And so that is why restaurant food tastes so good. So I went to my Rachel Bell Facebook page. It's facebook.com backslash hello Rachel Bell. And I asked people, what do you think you can make better at home? And the most common answer was steak. What? I did not. I was surprised by that. I don't believe that. I don't uh, either. I think two things. One, either people like their steak overdone, and so they're fine with cooking the bajunk out of it, 
or but junk or <laughs> trying things out uh or they go to restaurants that don't really know how to do the steak right and they're getting something that's overcooked i think that i'm a pretty good cook and i do not know when a steak is ready like i don't know when it's medium rare i don't know how to cook it so i was i was surprised can i tell you how to cook a steak medium rare sure four minutes on each side but but doesn't it depend on how thick the steak is? Yeah, you're talking about an inch, like an inch thick. So if okay. it's a little thinner, not quite as much time. If it's a little thicker, a little more time. But medium high heat, four minutes aside. News you can use. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so after steak, I think the second most common thing was spaghetti, specifically the marinara sauce. And then everything else was a comfort food, which makes sense. People said uh, meatloaf tastes better at home, which... I don't think I ever order meatloaf in a restaurant. Uh, scrambled eggs taste better at home. These are things that either their parents probably made a certain way or they're just nostalgic about. And I think eggs are very personal. We have talked about matzo ball soup, but we are not done with soup talk. I interviewed Larry Thomas, who was nominated for an Emmy for playing the soup Nazi on Seinfeld. No soup for you. Thank you so much. We couldn't afford to get that clip either. <laughs> and I want to point out that he had about six minutes of time on that episode and was nominated for an Emmy wow. for that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I interviewed Larry while he was giving out samples of soup in a Fred Meyer supermarket in Seattle. That's coming up after the break. We'll be right back. You heard the man say it earlier. Soup makes Stephen Page happy. I started popularizing, you know, popularizing in my small group of friends and family that I say soup is a treat. That's like my, that's kind of my slogan. Because one day when I was on tour and and there was catering and I went and they saw soup at lunchtime. It was cauliflower soup or something. I put it in my bowl and I was all excited and walked over to the table and I sat down next to my bandmates and said, soup is a treat. And my son was there too. And my bandmate just said, did you just say soup? Is it a treat? <laughs> and I was like, I was just saying it out loud to myself. Yeah. I was just actually excited. And uh, and my son was like, it is a treat. What is your favorite soup? Mm, I don't know. It changes a lot. A good matzo ball soup, if it's a really rich chicken broth, that's fantastic. Or chicken noodle soup. Uh, the one I can never pronounce, Avgolomeno. Avgolomeno. That uh, is really good. It's pretty fantastic. Caldo Verde. The, You're so international yeah. soup-wise. A mulligatawny soup even, you know, like a little lentil soup, any lentil soup. I could talk about soup all day. I know. You're like the soup Nazi reincarnate. Except with no Nazi. Exactly. I'm like the soup Schindler. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of the soup Nazi, a couple of years ago, I got a press release from a soup company called The Original Soup Man. They make boxes of soup, and they invited me down to a local supermarket where they would be giving out soup samples. Now, ordinarily, I would have very quickly deleted this email because I'm not Stephen Page. I'm not that excited about soup. But not just anyone was handing out the soup samples. They had hired Larry Thomas, the dude who played the soup Nazi. And if you haven't seen this episode of Seinfeld, oh my God, what's wrong with you? But enough Seinfeld shaming. I will just tell you, this episode was about a little soup shop in Manhattan that was run by a tyrant chef who would scream at you and tell you to leave if you took too long to order at the counter or if you asked any questions or if you asked for an extra slice of bread. And this episode was based on a real soup counter where one of the Seinfeld writers used to eat lunch. This guy was struggling to write his first complete episode for the show. All his ideas were kind of lame. And one day he was telling his boss about this insane, angry soup man 
And his boss was like, this, this is the plot. Why don't you write about this? And so he did. Fast forward to many years later, the actual real life soup Nazi who owned that soup shop, he started a line of box soups called the original soup man. And eventually he got the actor who played him to be the spokesperson. So I'm lazy and I'm just going to play you a big chunk of a story that I did a few years ago where I interviewed Larry Thomas because I was trying to write it and I'm like, you know what? The one I did three years ago is actually better than anything I'm coming up with now. (laughs) Oh, and just one note in the piece, I say that the episode is 21 years old. It's actually 24 years old. I did this story a few years ago. I don't know if an actor ever even dreams that any one job is going to be more than just one job. Seinfeld was my favorite TV show at the time, so that was the cool part of it. 21 years later, Larry is still writing his six minutes of Soup Nazi fame. He still acts, and he's the spokesman for the original Soup Man. Soups available at the grocery store made by the real Soup Nazi the character was based on. I met Larry at a Seattle Fred Meyer where he was signing autographs and giving out soup samples. And he told me the original story of the Soup Nazi. The Soup was on 55th and 8th Avenue since uh, around 1984, and the Letterman writers were uh, around the corner at the Ed Sullivan Theater, and they were big fans of the soup, and they're the ones that came up with the nickname the Soup Nazi for the chef, Al Yegane, because of the rules. Know your soup, have your money ready, place your order, and step to the left. One of those Letterman writers, a guy named Spike Ferriston, got hired on Seinfeld, and that was his first script. And they were looking for someone to play the chef with a Middle Eastern accent. What I came up with was an imitation of Omar Sharif, because he's Egyptian, and I knew it would be the right accent. You know, no one ever went like, you sound like Omar Sharif. It was my little secret. And that tiny six-minute part still has people coming up to Larry Daly, begging him to say his famous catchphrase. I've said it like 20 times today already. I'll say it for you if you want. No soup for you. The fact that Larry is hawking soup for the original Soup Man is rather interesting, considering the real Soup Nazi hated the episode and hated Jerry Seinfeld. So there's actually an interview in the Seinfeld Extras, if we can go back to DVD land, with the episode's writer. His name is Spike Ferriston, and he tells the story of Jerry Seinfeld going into the soup shop after the episode aired. So Spike told him, Seinfeld, do not go in. He hates you. He's really upset. And Seinfeld was like, what are you talking about? Like, we featured him on this show. He is famous now. But most of all, we're giving him a ton of business. Like, how could he be upset with me? Spike's like, "What? okay, whatever you want to do. So they go in to the soup shop. The soup Nazi sees Seinfeld. And sure enough, he completely unleashes on him. He uses every curse word in the book. He's screaming and yelling. And the way Spike tells it, uh, Jerry Seinfeld did apologize, but he did his signature kind of, I'm sorry, kind of like sarcastic, whiny apology and walked out of the soup shop. But 24 years later, Larry Thomas still can't order soup without causing a stir. If I go to a restaurant and I hear the soup is good, I'll, I'll try it. And I, I do get a smirk and a giggle from the waiters most of the time. Dishes Stephen Page wants to eat for his last meal are all very homey. Dishes that are better homemade than served in a restaurant. 
And as a cook, he's trying to create that same warm, loving atmosphere for his family. I read a very sweet um, article that said that before you'll go on a tour, you'll often cook a bunch for your family and freeze it all so that they can eat the food while you're gone. Oh, yeah. That's really sweet. I like to do it. It's my expression of love for my family and yeah. for my friends. And my wife does so many other things. And she just made my studio in my house. Like wow. did all the made the desk, made the the soundproofing, everything. That's awesome. Yeah, she's that's her thing. Cooking, she hates it. She does it because she has to. So it ends up you know, either it's takeout or it's you know warming up something else from the freezer that some factory made. If I have the time to be able to make some some other stuff that they can eat. What's one of those other stuffs? What is one of their well, favorites? Right tonight, I think they're having tonight they're having shepherd's pie. Simple, but authentic, real, and from a you know grass fed local cow, of course. But, so I guess that's cottage pie if it's from a cow. Oh, is that the difference? Shepherd's pie is from a sheep. Oh, wow. I am learning about livestock, and that was Stephen Page's last meal. So this is how the whole world ends when all mankind at last repents. Steven's new album is called Discipline, Heal Thyself Part 2. I don't know why I have to say it in that weird, godlike, authoritative tone, but so be it. Steven is going on a Canadian tour for the entire month of May. There are actually shows in Vancouver and Victoria if you happen to live in some place like Seattle where you can just drive up a few hours with your passports. And he's probably going to add some more U.S. dates. Go to stevenpage.com for tickets. Thanks to Jeffrey Yoskowitz, co-creator of the Gefilteria, co-author of the beautiful cookbook, The Gefilte Manifesto. I have this book on my shelf, and it's the perfect thing to have in time for your Passover Seder. So go to gefilteria.com to order the book, and that is where you can order some of Jeffrey's Gefilte fishies for your Seder. Thanks to Larry Thomas, the soup Nazi. He is no longer a spokesman for the original soup man, but boy, were those the days. <laughs> His website is therealsoupnazi.com. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me, theme music by prom queen and an editorial note i am taking a vacation next week so our next episode is probably going to be a week late let's go 1989 and i'll tell you to take a chill pill we will be back uh but i've done some really great interviews over the past couple of weeks that i'm excited to share with you i interviewed fashion designer isaac mizrahi who is the nicest and funniest person and i want him to tuck me into bed every night and continue to call me darling thank you all right darling bye-bye hi so dreamy and I'll have an episode coming up with Rain Wilson, the hilarious dude who played Dwight on The Office. My mom wanted to name me Thucydides after the great Greek historian, author of the Peloponnesian Wars. I don't know what they would have called me as a kid, Thuce, or Sid or Thucydides, or I don't know what my nickname would have been. Lots of fun stuff coming up. You can follow me on Instagram, Your Last Meal Podcast, and please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Oh, and always remember, soup is a treat. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. Calculus and astronomy, they pale aside Deuteronomy. We've banned the drugs and the sodomy, and now we fix the economy. Because we were wrong, we knew we were wrong, yes, all along, we knew we were wrong, yes,
sing this song to prove we were wrong. Yes, we were strong by being so wrong. that to you later in just we'll explain that to you in just a couple few seconds later we'll fill you in <laughs> ah, we got a lot of bloops today bloop bloops but the record label but the record label told me that it's gonna cost money and i said i don't have any money okay okay i feel like i'm gonna have a small burp no Mm-mm. didn't come Gross. Okay. <laughs> this oh, I don't know. This sentence is dumb. I'm a potato bug. Roll me around. I'll scrunch up into a ball. You can roll me around. I'm a clown. <laughs> that was crazy.